in my career of 25-ish years of investing in M&A is I've seen at different times that spike of like back to like character counts and your reputation really matters. The Pathfinder podcast is presented to you by Ansarada. Ansarada is the modern deal and virtual data room technology designed to make M&A, capital raising, divestments, restructures, and IPOs as simple as possible. Since 2005, Ansarada has been trusted in over 24,000 transactions and powered over $1 trillion worth of deals. Ansarada is a secure space that includes workflow tools, AI-powered data rooms, built-in question and answer and integration frameworks. It's the data room trusted by modern dealmakers. You can start for free today at Ansarada.com. You know I like a winning team, so say it with me, Ansarada.com for your next winning outcome. Welcome to The Pathfinders, the modern dealmaker series brought to you by Ansarada. Now here's your host, Dahani Jones. Welcome back everybody to The Pathfinders presented by Ansarada. I'm your host, former NFL player, investor, and entrepreneur, Dahani Jones. Joining me on the show today is general partner of Intel Capital, voting member of Intel's investment committee and chair of Intel's impact investment initiative, Trina Van Pelt. For 17 years, Trina has been helping Intel grow their already stellar portfolio with her focus on late stage equity investments across industries like intelligent edge, mobility, AI, the internet of things, and much more. Today, she joins us to discuss growth, and show she is making late-stage equity deals with some of the biggest names in tech. Trina Van Pelt, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Great. Uh, Dahani, thanks for having me here. It's such an honor to be able to talk to you about this. Great, great subject. Well, since we talk about football all the time, I figure we'd talk about investments. I mean, we, we could talk about football, you know. Like, well, we have to at least give some props that Michigan finally <laughs> has overcome that 10-year drought. My children now actually realize Michigan football can beat Ohio State football. They weren't sure what actually happened. <laughs> it's like within their lifetime, they actually saw. Within their lifetime. Yes. My oldest was just starting to walk the last time we won. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, there are some great moments in life. And I think, you know, I got a chance to to be at the game and just to watch that fanfare. And, you know, I was just reflecting earlier today when I was on the field, fortunate enough in 97, right? I was a part of that crowd that was on the ground. And then this time I get to be the fan and watch from the stands and it's mayhem. Michigan fans, Michigan folks are everywhere. And I know you're a Michigan grad, so you know how prevalent and how amazing our community is. Yeah, and it's great that we just didn't give up, right? And I think even last Saturday's win was just a great show um, and testament to teamwork. You know, so many players and some whose names that you may not have recognized every single Saturday all stood up and did their best. And honestly, it carries over into deal making. It's an approach in the culture that we have within Intel Capital. Frankly, when we redesigned it, a handful of years ago, along with um, my, my former boss, who was also a Michigan grad. I mean, the, the culture was the team, the team, the team. Mm. And even my other partners who are not Michigan grads embrace it because they realize it is sports is such a metaphor for life and for business. And it's really important that we learn these lessons and, and you know, deploy them you know, in, in professional as well as personal life. So is that also a part of the paradigm shift that's happening in capital investments 
being able to kind of think about things from an all inclusive standpoint versus kind of putting people into their silos and into their offices and kind of doing their own thing. How is it shifting right now? Yeah, I do think it actually has been where it's really you know, put people to think differently about where do they source deals. It's trying to source deals in either, you know, early or late stage is incredibly competitive. And it is so much about your networks. And if you're going to go find some of the best deals, you've got to be able to extend those networks and not just kind of reaching out to the same people that you have in the past. And I think also, as we think about kind of paradigm shifts, I mean, there's been a handful of them recently that um, I've seen over time and that, that I wouldn't even name is like, you know, one is, uh, is like the U.S.-China relations and how that's impacting where you can source deals and, mm. and even what deals can get put through or even, you know, acquisitions later. We're seeing um, monetary policy has been another big paradigm shift because of the low cost of debt and borrowing, you know, the amount of capital able to be deployed, the amount of money that has been put into private equity and venture funds, you know, has been pushing pressure on the on the valuations as well. And unfortunately, leading to more inflation. But on the flip side, where I come back is another paradigm shift I think is the most marked is obviously COVID and like the future of work, how it's really mm. changed the perspective of many people of how you can actually get work done. I mean, I talked to a lot of other deal brethren as well, where we are doing deals entirely remote through video and you know, versus kind of getting on a plane. People are able to also, there is still travel, and I think it's still important to get to meet and you know have dinner, break bread with you know people that you're going to be investing in. But you can also identify companies much faster. Like you can get to a faster no because you quickly had a Zoom meeting and you realize this is not the right fit. Maybe you could end up making a couple more introductions for them, but you didn't spend a day crisscrossing the country for that one one-hour meeting. Mm. And the other thing that it has, or even like with one of my companies that I've invested in, is it's enabled a whole new set of entrepreneurs. One of the companies that I've invested in, Mighty Networks, you know, is really driving this like creator economy. And what was fascinating, like they got some tailwinds, you know, from COVID, but it's continued. And what was great to see even on that diversity point is that when they started looking at who are the new creators, the new entrepreneurs coming into their platform, 40% were diverse founders. You know, it's so like it's opening up a whole new way that is going to, again, I think that's going to help drive, you know, further change. Yeah. And I, I know Intel is, is focused on diversity and the companies you invest in. You know, why, why prioritize that, especially, you know, with black entrepreneurs and, and other BIPOC, you know, groups, why is that important? Well, I think, first of all, you find, you know, some of the best deals. And so like the diversity initiative, you know, something that um, a former colleague started um, in 2015 with a former CEO of ours, it's where I, I kind of got into more of a leadership role on it in like 2017 to 2018. And we first started making like a team where it wasn't what happened when it first started was, oh, there's a woman founder. Send it to me because I was one of the few few women you know, in, in the group. It's like, no, this is everybody's job. Mm. And we kind of made it a, a way that we all get business done. But it's where more creativity. I mean, there's been tons of studies, right, where you have a diverse group of people and experiences. You know, some of it can be, you know, um, geographic areas, economic growth, you know, work experiences, travel experiences that we're bringing to bear, studies have still shown that when you bring together a diverse team, you're going to be, create better products, better services. And that type of dynamic 
just leads to better companies. So like the studies have all shown that. Now for us on the focus, as we've kind of looked at it, where over the last three years, our diversity investments have now equaled about 30% of our new deals and new dollars on an annual basis. Now the rest of the industry is mostly in single digits. But then when we broke that down further, we're like, well, where is that going? And for us, I mean, we, we are a firm that's investing over $400 million a year. We have over 200 active portfolio companies, and nearly 50 of them right now have diverse leadership. So we're, we're doing a, a good place there. When we break it down, you know, half are women and about a third are black and brown. We're like, we can do better. You know, again, we, it, we're already doing well by industry standards, but that's not quite enough. But then we kind of take a look at there's one, the investments that we can make. And then secondly, started to get a little more creative on, on what else we do to help support the ecosystem. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, investing in companies that are enabling new entrepreneurs to be able to launch their businesses. And, you know, some of those entrepreneurs are making 300, 400,000 and a couple of people, a million plus a year. So these are, they're like making real money. Then we looked at and we did one fund investment in Plexo Capital, which again is now you know, investing in more seed stage micro VCs as well as companies. That is not kind of our strength of, of Intel Capital. So with that, now we're enabling more in, in the ecosystem that can be investments we do, but we're also not trying to hold it all to ourselves. We're trying to enable that for other VCs. So now mm. there are more companies getting founded. And so trying to think about ways that you can scale beyond what your, the construct of your fund, your check size, et cetera, can go do. And, you know, some of that also extends into even like broader, like board advisorships and things of, of, you know, trying to get, get more people on boards. Is that hard to do? Is it hard to convince internally sort of to make that effort? Because when you sit at the table and you have such a sizable amount of capital to deploy, and when you're intentionally trying to think about how to diversify that portfolio, while at the same time trying to recruit and understand and get more companies into the pipeline, sometimes th- that can be a challenge in and of itself. And then you're kind of sitting there, you know, saying, let's go do this. But then sometimes the risk creeps in and people feel as though what they've done in the past is much easier. So how do you translate that and how do you get people to think differently and think forward, forward leaning and not go into the past? I mean, I will say the leadership at Intel has been outstanding in this regard. There has not been a question of why, why should we be doing this? If anything, but where, where we are and we hold very true is we're not going to do it and we're not going to invest just because we want to make sure that we are investing in the best companies because in order to help drive this paradigm shift, you have to be able to show the metrics and the results that these have been outstanding investments mm-hmm. and holding the bar to the same. And, and everyone that I've talked to who is diverse is a thank you, right? The bar has to be held the same. So it's not. And, and so in where we are in situations at times like, well, is this the right deal for Intel to do? Or is this the right deal that we should introduce to somebody else? So that, that's the only place where I think we have some of that discussion of like, gosh, we really, and there was you know, one recently too, where it's like, we really like this, this concept. We'd like to go do it, but I don't know how we're going to be able to explain to our shareholders that 
this was an investment that Intel should be making. You know, and so that's where I think you you get that piece because you don't want to be um, you want to like again hold true to who you are. Do you feel as though people are following your lead? I think there are more. And again, the thing that I like to what I want to kind of push people to do and the challenge is when you make commitments to say, you know, we're going to look to diversify the check writers in this round or we're going to look to diversify the boards, follow through and report on what you actually did. And so I think we are starting to see that a little bit more. So when you look at the, the world of investing, you know, how do you differentiate or how do you decide between areas of which to kind of deploy capital around growth and then also venture? How do you look at those two? And then also, how do you think about it when you think about some of the diversified portfolio that you're, that you have within Intel? So putting kind of my Intel capital hat on and just, and just general investor hat, it all starts with a thesis, right? Of really kind of understanding from a thesis perspective, what is the market dynamic? Where is the opportunity where do you see the potential growth? What is you know, kind of what is the real customer problem that is being solved? And then looking to find companies that have some unique differentiation in and around solving that customer problem. And then the team. I always have like three three things I look at for every particular deal, right? Market size, product differentiation, and the team. And you need all three. And you need all three, whether it's early stage or late stage investing. But it starts that in that perspective. But then as you kind of think through early versus late stage, you know, many times in early stage, you're proving is the market opportunity really there? Mm-hmm. Is the customer opportunity there? And are we able to acquire company, acquire customers at a low enough acquisition cost? You know, what's the payback period? You know, can we do this? Can we scale? When you get to a growth perspective, a lot of those questions have already been addressed, right? And so it's de-risked to some extent. And I really think about it as now you're in like a scaling mode for the company. You're fortifying whatever moat or differentiation has been created because you have the product market fit, go to market's been proven. So now it's, it's, it's try to grow fast, but grow fast in a capital efficient way. You know, and then on the team side, maybe you're augmenting the team because there are some founders who can make that transition from like the early stage, you know, in the garage or from the PowerPoint all the way through public company and other times not. And so I think finding teams that are coachable and recognizing, hey, here's where I need other people to help me out who have gone through this before is great. But you also now at this stage have more metrics and more data analysis that you can do. But it's still, in many cases, as an investor, there is overall conviction that you have Mm. and judgment. But later stage, you have more data that you can start looking at to start to understand, are there ways and different toggles that we can change that will all of a sudden increase the profitability or will ramp the growth? Or is there a certain kind of batch of customers that we need to fire because they might they might really like the product, but they're not profitable. And so for overall, for an organization, you know, we need to shift that. Yeah. They always talk about what, what got you here is not always going to be what gets you there. And I'd imagine with the portfolio of companies that you all have and, and from a Intel standpoint, from an investor standpoint, you're always trying to use as much data as possible. I mean, the whole world is based upon data, data, data. Do you ever feel like it kind of drowns out sort of like the overall mission, which is to kind of get the right lead of the right team in place in order for them to go out and execute? 
Like, I, yes. I feel like I'm getting all excited now just thinking about the world of football. And I know that the world of football is moving towards data analytics too, trying to figure out like, you know, do you run the ball on fourth and one or do you kick a field goal? Those types of things. But sometimes there's a feel around that as well. So how do you meld the feel and the good sense that you have the right leader and the right team and the data and analytics with that too, to make a right choice? So I, I do agree that, yes, there's like there, you can be drowned in data and there's so much different data, lots of noise that comes into it. You know, when you think about it, even from an enterprise edge perspective, you know, some of it's structured, some of it's unstructured. You know, when things are coming into a factory, there's so many different types of protocols in which is coming in to measure it. But as an investor, I think what's always really important is simplify down to what are the two to three mm-hmm. key issues? What is going to make this company successful or not? And you know, you have to balance it to go, okay, when do I need to pay attention to this noise? It's getting a little louder. Maybe I should listen to this, but, and keeping your team and your, and your management team very focused on that so that they can continue to execute so that they don't drown in it. It is very challenging, but I think that, you know, from a, like a board advisory perspective is where you can really help in kind of those deeper strategic decisions to say, what are we going to focus on this year and what are we not? I've had some companies that just do an amazing job with fast experimentation on go-to-market, right? Where they're like, hey, we're going to try this. And we're like, well, we're trying it for a month. And we may do more, we may do less, but we're going to measure it and then quickly learn. And I wish more companies did that. You Because like that's, that's a way of like, okay, we've got some noise here. Let's like define, like, state our hypothesis, define what we want to do, measure it. Does it make sense? Is this like something new is popping up or was it just noise? But I think focusing on a few key issues mm-hmm. and not letting yourself get distracted. I mean, I think it's the same thing even like on a personal basis, right? If you kind of get up every day and, and like have your head going with like a hundred things you need to do, like you're going to feel like a failure at the end of the day because it's not going to happen. Right. You need to make sure that like you, you accomplish the few a few ones. And honestly, one of the best pieces of advice that somebody gave me was about, and I think it's at, on an individual basis as well as on a company basis, is leave the capacity in your day, you know, for what else might come. Because if you focus on a few things and you have capacity for now when that emergency or something new comes in, you have the opportunity to go, oh, I'm going to take that phone call. I'm going to meet that person. Maybe that leads to something else. I'm going to go pay attention to this. Where if you have everything that you're, you're just trying so much, you're going to have your head down and you're not going to be open to more learning and opportunity. So, you know, you talked about a million things going around in your head and, and I am the exact example of a million things going on around in my head. And some days maybe I feel as though I didn't get to all of them. I don't know if I necessarily feel as extreme as, as a failure, but you know, I think that there's also like a responsibility of some to kind of source some of these ideas. And maybe some people have a greater capacity. Maybe, maybe I just have a little bit of greater capacity to have some of those things in my brain, but I think you're right. The world of simplicity is necessary in order to kind of achieve that focus, especially when you have such a, heavy responsibility to provide alpha, you know, to, to the investment vehicle of which so many of your shareholders are dependent upon you. And, and when you're looking at the landscape, you have to kind of push towards the edge of things. And so I'm curious, 
about how, you know, new technologies like 5G and Edge are affecting the way that you look at in investments and are those maybe some of the things that you're investing in? And then also, how does that relate to the world of mobility? You know, that's an area of which I feel as though is a prime area of growth. Like I'm obsessed with all these electric vehicles moving all around the place and people don't realize like it's all being directed back to one source of information and they're all talking to each other. I mean, you look at a Tesla automobile and you can provide you know, an upload, which therefore takes all these cars and lifts them up a couple inches because they've had some of the cars run a little bit low. I mean, that happened a while back. So just curious about 5G and Edge and how you think about investing, especially around the world of mobility, because I think you invest in a company called Zeker. And I think that the world of mobility is fast approaching and people need to recognize and realize that. Yes. First of all, Intelligent Edge 5G is a very important investment area for me um, and, and Intel Capital. So much of these, you know, when you think about Intelligent Edge, like there are many decisions that are being made at the edge. You mm. need artificial intelligence running right there. When four cars reach a stop sign, there's not time for it to go up into the cloud to make a decision of who goes where, right? There's an immediate mesh network that needs to be created and those cars need to communicate with each other to, to signal who's gonna go what. But then it brings in other challenges about, I mean, obviously compute at the edge and where, you know, you need to have things that can last a long time in the field or a short time in the field over there updates, but you need security as well. Very, very strong security so that it cannot be hacked. And when I think about mobility, it is one of the hardest intelligent edge examples when you think about autonomous driving to be able to execute on. But you know, it's and I think so in so much of what we're seeing, too, like we have and like and I think the the intelligent edge is going to be pervasive, you know, for us all. It's there in healthcare. Mm-hmm. This is not just like in like, you know, sexy autonomous driving. Right. I mean, you know, healthcare and healthcare at the edge is in to help making decisions where, you know, there's going to be more home care and opportunities there is incredibly important. Retail is another one also. And where where kind of that combination of brick and mortar and online and recommendations hit. But specifically going into more like global mobility and Zeker, you know, what's really interesting is, I mean, mobility is a challenge for, for, for every country, but they have different ones. And even states have different situations. Cities have different topography, you know, whether mm-hmm. there's hills, temperatures, right? I mean, how a vehicle works in, you know, Minnesota in like the cold winter, versus LA is very different. So, you know, and electrification is obviously a huge part of this and thinking through where do you have charging stations, how much, you know, energy is being used to go up those hills, when can it get back to recharge, et cetera. But it's important for us, like as we've made our different investments, you know, really beginning with Mobileye on the acquisition, um, you know, in Israel, MoveIt was another um, equity investment that I drove, which then Intel later acquired, Zeker now in China, Beep is another company. But as we look at it, you know, you each country is going to have different regulations and different mandates. And where government policy can all of a sudden encourage something, where you know the U.S. is interesting. I mean, you have NHTSA, but you also have different states and mm. cities. You know, and the infrastructure, the quality of the infrastructure is incredibly challenging as well for like, where can that vehicle pull over work you know, and, and work through? San Francisco as a case in point, right? And so where we're seeing a lot within, you know, China is an opportunity where um, 
you can really get more, more adoption faster. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these countries are going to require that you have indigenous solutions. So it's not like you can just have one provider who's going to be able to be the global leader. You know, there's going to be a mixture of where, you know, Germany is going to want to see some of their own companies in there, China, you know, Israel, the U.S., right? There's going to be a blend and it's going to just be interesting to see how that further develops. When we first made that investment, you know, with the mobile, we knew this is a long long-term investment. Mm -hmm. And one of the key things like back to even the point with, with the executives is like, this is not something we can change our mind on in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. This is a 10 year investment period. And it is a huge market opportunity, you know, so you can't all of a sudden get too nervous about what, you know, how things are in the first couple of years, because it's a long game, not a short game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, the, the long tail investment is uh, important for people to consider and to realize I mean, just look at the world of supply chain right now. Everybody just expects things to show up when the world shuts down. It takes two or three years to kind of get back on track because everything came to a screeching halt. I mean, if if you're in the world of distribution, you know that what you're creating today is going to be what's distributed two years later. And just personally, I just want all of my things to work. I'm just letting you know, you know, you talked about Minnesota and you talked about California. I'm not going to say what kind of car I have, but I would just say this. Some days I just want the technology just to work. You know, I yes. just want it to kind of work. And and that's also part of the long game is understanding sort of the challenges that are going to come along the way. Some of the investments that are going to come along the way, some of the decision making that's going to come along the way, let alone the AI and the edge computing and the mesh networks. They have to work, but then we also kind of have to make those decisions. And so I just love the fact that you're sitting right there in the middle of it and you have purview over so much of what's happening in our industry today. The Pathfinders podcast is presented to you by Ansarada. Ansarada is the modern deal and virtual data room technology designed to make M&A, capital raising, divestments, restructures, and IPOs as simple as possible. Ansarada has just launched Freemium with the world's first online data room quote. Now you can get a free data room and quote in just three clicks and just 15 seconds. There's no need to wait. Get your room open straight away, no matter what stage you're at. Deal marketing, deal preparation, or due diligence. And here's the best bit. Usage fees only start when the deal goes live. All the top M&A firms and investment banks are jumping on it. That's because there is no risk, just reward. Pretty cool, right? Check it out at ensarada.com slash quote. You know I like a winning team, so say it with me. Ensarada. Dot com for your next winning outcome. So I'd imagine that things have changed over the last 25 years. But when you think about the world of deal making, what are the two or, or three things that you feel as though it is really, really dynamic in what it was before and how it is now? I think that in deal making, the probably the biggest challenge has just been the high amount of dollars that are available to invest. Again, like kind of back to the point where money's been really cheap. Funds are raising mega funds. They have to put the money to work. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing later stage investors keep moving down into the stack. You know, and so that puts pressure sometimes on valuations. And so that's just one of the things that you just continue to see about. And I think the encourage kind of like the encouragement I would say is that I was like, 
be true to who you are. And I know some funds mm-hmm. really are like, look, like this is what we're good at. This is what we're not. But it gets really tricky because it's a business and they need to keep raising the next fund. And then when I'm talking about these things that are long game, when you have a 10 year fund cycle, you know, you have to show those wins in that short period of time. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of figure out how you're balancing that. I think that's been one of the real key challenges. But the second thing of what I think sometimes maybe like in, in my career of 25 ish years of investing in M&A is I've seen at different times that spike of like back to like character counts and your reputation mm-hmm. really matters. And it seems like we maybe got into a little bit where people got a little ahead of that and was like out for whatever they can go get. And I think that in the end is also like coming back to and maybe maybe this is all that COVID has created for people to like more time to kind of like think a little bit more about that. But that's mm-hmm. the thing that I always bet has been held to me, very true to me where I've said multiple times to bosses, I'd rather be fired for doing the right thing than keep my job for keeping my mouth shut or not, right? It's like, cause I think that is that you are you and that goes with you wherever you go. And I feel like in deal making sometimes where people may wanna like cut some corners, what the case may be, you know, is now um, I think, you know, people are really recognizing that importance of like, who is gonna be there when like, we might be thinking this is an amazing company, What's happening when we're out of money? We're trying to figure out how do mm. we make that next, how that, that payroll, what else do we do? So that I think that that character is a piece of it. Where did that come from for you? Because there's a lot of people that are investors that I'd imagine don't think like that and some that might. But where where did that originate from you? I mean, I, I obviously like the Midwest personality and an ability to kind of understand the team, the team, the team, when it relates to the world of Michigan, but into such a challenging world of investing when everybody's kind of going after these deals and everybody's chasing alpha, everybody's raising money and everybody thinks that like they're the best. A lot of times character to your point kind of becomes a part of it, but it's more about getting the, the job done. Where does this part of empathy come into it? Because out of all the conversations that I've that have had on the Pathfinders, I don't think I've ever crossed the threshold of empathy, but you kind of brought it up. And I just wondering where yeah. your empathy came from, where did it originate from and how has it affected and s- supported you along the way? I, I guess it came from when I, where I grew up and just um, kind of being instilled, you know, by my parents. But even when I, mean, I just remember even in high school, it was like the cool kids and the nerds. And I was like, I hang out with everybody. Because <laughs> I was like, I want to know what's interesting about you. Like, I just, I don't know. It was just part of like who, how, how it got, how it, how it started. You know, I just, I, I just started. I always was really curious. I wanted to learn. I always have this view, like I hear people talk bad about somebody. It was like, mm. well, until they actually do it to me, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, mm-hmm. and and like go figure out why. And so I think it just started really early, where I just, I was very open minded which for where I grew up is not necessarily like the the norm, but was just always like, I was just curious and wanted to go see. Maybe also my parents taking me on my first flight to Germany when I was 11 and getting to go visit like five different countries at that time where like nobody in my town was doing that. Just like I opened up seeing new cultures and every time I've done a deal internationally, it's been so much more about, I want to know the culture and the people and the culture and business, because it makes a difference in how you actually can get deals done mm. in uh, in some really tricky negotiations, listening and realizing that people are talking past each other and trying mm-hmm. to help find that thread to go, wait a second, 
we're actually trying to help you. This isn't trying to like take something from you. And when you say it in that way, it's like, oh, we are actually in this together. And so Mm. I just think it's always been, I've just always been listening to people and trying to figure out kind of, is there some sort of disconnect? You know, but that being said, look, I've had some people who have outright lied to me in deals and they're well, but they have to live with themselves. And I think for me, I had a point in my career, maybe it was about eight, 10 years ago where I was just frustrated, right? It was like, how come like, you know, I wanted things to be going faster or different or whatever. And I was like, what really matters? And in the end, I was like, wait a second. It's not like the job is one thing, but in the end, it's like, I am raising two boys and I want my boys to be proud of who their mom is and what I'm doing. And if I can kind of leave each day that, you know, maybe I I left a good impact. Maybe I was also um, show some vulnerability or to be like, you know, in the end, like that's what matters most and kind of that character and reputation. And when I kind of just started with that mentality, everything just started to grow great because I think sometimes people hold on so tight. And I think it's even a message for founders you're like, you can hold on so, so tight. You can go back and stay rooted in like the couple key things that really matter or like why you're driving the company that you are driving, what you're looking to accomplish. You know, many things will fall in place. Wow. That was, uh, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> because I think a lot of times people overlook that simple fact of the character of which you've been cultivated to be and the legacy that you wish to leave for your children is important. And those two together kind of make the mind of, of who you are as an investor and also a great partner, because when you get into these deals, Oh, you're united for a long time and you're in for the long haul. And we saw it happen in 2020 when people were in a challenged positions and VCs and private equity and, you know, people had to back them in order to kind of double down on the ones that they believe would survive and those that they thought that may not necessarily make it. It's all about being a good partner. So two more questions. What what do you think makes a successful deal? The people in many ways is kind of where things start. And it's it's kind of the team on both sides for doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, but I think overall on the fundamental basis, it's one making sure that there is actually a real market for the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And a market that's going to be growing, that's going to be a sufficient size, that's going to warrant, like, is this a VC backable company or is this, it's a great business, but it's a, it's a lifestyle business. And those, and that's okay too, right? But like kind of knowing like, what is this a market opportunity that supports, you know, venture or growth or late stage investing is one. The second is what is the real differentiation that the company has? What moat have they created? You know, are they going to be able, you know, many times too, we look at if someone is trying to unseat an incumbent, you know, there might be three times better, maybe five, you know, can it really be there? And, you know, early on, you have to have a lot of conviction and judgment on kind of assuming kind of what, what might need to happen to get there. But, you know, Mm -hmm. does that really play out? You know, and the third is the team. And, you know, from the negotiation perspective, it's like, really, truly making that a win-win. And I think people sharing, like, here's what matters. I and mean, when I think back to like some early deals that I um, was doing and like people, again, were, p- people were talking past each other, spending hours debating all the different cases. I'm like, I'm going to go have a drink with these guys and go figure it out. And, like we solved it <laughs> in 10 minutes, 
right? I'm like, like, so what's the issue that you have? And they told me like, well, that's not a problem, but it's like in the room with all the lawyers, nobody could actually talk that way. And that was just one of those things I just kind of cut through was like how you kind of get things done in a way that people feel good about it in the end. Right. I mean, you know, on the M&A side, sometimes there's too much of like, I got to feel like I won. And I saw that like with other people, too, is like they they want to feel like, well, that's not like this. Everybody needs to feel good. The sellers need to feel that they got a fair price. The buyer needs to feel they got a fair price. Otherwise, like the contracts is going to be there and then the rest of the business may not. And I think what people are just like balancing that short and long game. Well, if we end up ever doing a deal together, I know that we won't have any lawyers around. We'll just kind of go relax and have have a drink at, at a restaurant or somewhere like that. There are some good lawyers. <laughs> I've got some good lawyers. They will join us for the drinks and make it happen. Well, well, how about this? We'll, we'll invite some of the lawyers to come along with us. But, you know, along that route, one of the things we talk about in the Pathfinders is Meals and deals, we call it. So where do you get to celebrate and where do you like to celebrate some of the bigger deals that you've done? Well, from a um, and, you know, I love to travel as well. But so from so from a team perspective, I'm going to probably give props to like now locally in my town, Michael Mina just opened up an amazing new restaurant. So and, you know, San Francisco has had quite a few of its challenges. So if there was something out here on the West Coast, I'd get people over here with some beautiful views of of the city and the bridge and the food is spectacular. Such a great place for a team to really go have fun. But otherwise, depending if the deal would be international or where it was to be, would certainly look to be like celebrating there, kind of embracing that culture. On a personal side, once the, once the team celebration is done, I would go find a really fun trip to someplace on my bucket list <laughs> as a little thank you to myself. All right, give me one of the places on your bucket list. Maldives, haven't been there yet. Maldives. Well, you can save that for the next deal that you close. And I will say Bo Beckler would be proud of the team, the team, the team, as you as you stated over and over and the character that you have maintained as both a person, most importantly, and a mother, even more importantly, and also as an investor to those that you represent and work with. So Trina Van Pelt, I'm grateful for your um, your voice and your your stories here on the Pathfinders. And thank you so much for being on the show today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Dahani. It was, it was a great joy to have you kind of get some of these ideas out of me that were probably buried in my head. <laughs> Thank you, Trina. Thanks again to Trina for joining us on the show today and exploring the future of late stage equity investments and growth. If you like the show, remember to leave a review so that the show can reach even more dealmakers. Until next time, I'm Dahani Jones, and this has been The Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada.